Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Another great conversation. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that we don't run from hard conversations. We run to them. And the conversation we're going to continue to have here is one about race. So a little bit of context about me. My oldest two children, 16 and 12, are adopted. This is a conversation that we continue to have within our household. Some of my best friends are black, and we have been having great conversation behind the scenes. And I read a book called Insider Outsider by Brian Loritz. My journey as a stranger in white evangelicalism and my hope for us all. Brian is the real deal. And what I love about Brian, and, him, and this just comes out in the interview, which comes out as who he is, is that he wants to be helpful. He is a bridge, and God has really wired um, who he is with his story that he's been given um, with some incredible opportunities to shape the white church. So don't fast forward through this one. Don't listen to it at 1.5 speed. You may remember that after the murder of George Floyd, we specifically spent six episodes of the podcast doing a Dear White Leaders episode. So this will feel, or a series, this will feel a lot like that in many ways, but I would highly encourage you to pick up his book, Insider Outsider, as a great way to read through that personally, maybe as a church staff, maybe with a friend or your spouse. This is something my wife actually recommended to me. And it's been one of the most helpful resources that I've ever read around race. And Brian, just he is an incredible guy. He's a teaching pastor at a church called Summit in the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area. He's pastored in several places, several states, different types of churches, and his experience really comes out in this interview. So this is something near and dear to my heart. This is an issue we need to continue to talk about. We need to continue to seek God. We need to ask, what personally can I do? What personally is wrong or off or do I need to repent of? How can I lament is something that we talk about in this. And many of us as leaders, how can we actually lead our church, team, organization, business through this process. You might also know that at Stay Forth Designs, we have a cultural leadership advocate. Her name is Melinda Joy Mingo. We actually lead diversity and inclusion trainings through Stay Forth Designs and through her as our resident expert. So if you are a business, a nonprofit, a team, or just a group of people, maybe in a small group, who would like to invite her in for diversity and inclusion training, you can find that on our website at stayforth.com underneath coaching. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope it is thought-provoking, and I hope that you take some time to re-examine and to reimagine, because God is doing some exciting things in this generation, in this moment, and I don't want to miss it. Enjoy my conversation with Pastor Brian Loritz. Brian, welcome to the podcast, man. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we, uh, we want to talk about not just your book, Insider Outsider, today, but also just your story. I found your story um, so rich, so meaningful, and incredibly unique. And so can you take us back uh, to kind of, you know, growing up within the church? You just have an interesting way that you happened into being a pastor. Take us back to kind of your teen years and 20 years and how God shaped you through those. Yeah, so um, I am extremely blessed. Um, to be the son of parents who are still married. They're celebrating 50 years 
of marriage uh, next year. Come and, on. Um, you know, which is great. So not only are they still married, but both love Jesus and um, and both kind of lived out in a fresh, authentic way in front of me and my siblings uh, what it means to really follow Jesus. And on top of that, they were in vocational ministry together. So, um, you, you know, I'd, I'd bring my home, my friends over to our house from uh, from high school and they would uh, they would call us the Huxtables um, because a lot of my friends came from broken homes and uh, our home was one of the few pictures they had um, of both parents together uh, at the dinner table. My dad would open up the scriptures, would read a chapter. Um, so it's just that was the environment. But by no means, of course, were my parents perfect. They're very flawed individuals. And um, so I don't you know, I, that goes without saying. Um, so that was kind of my home life. Um, the schools that we went to um, were uh, typically about 50-50. Um, you know, back in Atlanta, back in those days, uh, it, you're still talking just black and white. There wasn't much of a Hispanic or Asian community. Um, and then uh, my parents were on staff with a Christian um, nonprofit organization that was just about all white. And so whenever we'd go to those events, you know, we'd be like the only black people in the room. And then our church um, was this mid-sized African-American church of a couple hundred people, uh, independent Baptist church that um, uh, that my parents um, were, had a role in helping to plant. And so over the years, it just kind of grew. So, you know, I was just kind of, and I didn't realize this, I was just kind of being hardwired into diversity and being able to float in and out of different contexts. I, you know, my, my dad preached in just as many white churches as he did black churches. And so I would see him contextualize uh, his pre presentations and he'd sweat and all that other stuff would need to change outfits at the black church and wouldn't break a sweat at the white church, wow. but you still got who he was. Hmm. Um, you know, you still experienced him. And so that was just kind of my norm uh, growing up. And um, God used those things and those experiences as he always does with people uh, in a profound way to set the trajectory of my life. You say this, in the infancy of my ministry, I found myself simply parroting the words of these well-known white evangelicals without wrestling with these truths before embracing them as mine. All right, man, what changed? Yeah, so what changed was, um, you know, I always intuitively knew that I was going to be in vocational ministry, uh, especially preaching. I mean, that was, um, I didn't have the Damascus Road experience where I was you know, running away from God and all of a sudden something happened. I just intuitively knew that. So uh, when I went off to uh, Bible college, um, here I am living in the dorms. It's the first time in my life that my world is almost completely white. Uh, now, growing up in Atlanta, again, I had segments of it that was white, um, but that was that was my world. And so now I am in that world and I'm studying the Bible, working towards a degree. Uh, all of my professors uh, are white. Um, all of the books on the syllabus were written by white men. Uh, and I don't, I don't say that in any kind of a pejorative way at all. Um, and so because it's impossible to do theology to completely detach from our biases, I was being handed... Um, 
a biblical worldview with white fingerprints on it. Um, and so like anyone who is very much still in the formative phase of their growth and development. So here I am, late teens, early 20s. Um, I'm just taking what's being spoon fed to me and regurgitating it. That's what I mean by that. And so, um, I, but I think that's kind of typical for people my age. And then later on in life, you get some experiences, um, you start to mature in some ways, and then you start to really think and you, you know, you go, yeah, I, that's foolish. I don't need to believe that. Or no, that's actually good over there. And I'm going to hold on to that. Or, or that's good over there, but I'm just going to tweak that and contextualize it. Um, but in my early uh, 20s, I was just kind of spitting back out what was being handed to me and what was being handed to me just so happened uh, to have white fingerprints on it. And you... You have a ministry, forgive me, this is the wrong analogy, but really as a, a bridge. And I, even as I read this book, so helpful for me to understand your context and some of the environments you've just explained. Was was there a moment or a season, Brian, when you realized I really could have a role in bringing white and black together as the church? Yes, that came later on. Um, you know, I had a traumatic experience in Bible college where a um, uh, a white classmate of mine uh, called me a uh, very racially insensitive term. And uh, that set me on an emotional uh, tailspin. And it was kind of my first time really having to process evangelical hypocrisy. Um, and I didn't process it well, to the point where when I graduated, um, I knew I was going to the black church. And my assumption was I would always be in the black church in some way, shape or form. Um, and then what started to happen in my mid to late, in my mid twenties, um, God called me out of the black church to go across town to a white church, large white church, where I was our first African-American pastor on staff in the history of that church. And that's some hundred plus years wow. at the time. And God sent me there to really do a healing work in my life. And then the itinerant ministry starting to grow. And I realized that I'm speaking in homogenous environments. They're either all white or all black. And um, I'll never forget um, my mid to late 20s. I spoke at this event um, and it was a Christmas conference in the same city. They did two of them. One was for their white uh, college ministry. And the other was for what they called their urban college ministry, which is code for black. And I spoke at the same one 10 minutes apart. Wow. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, um, this is a this is a bit much. It's a little ridiculous. And uh, there's a there's a hole in the wall. And I want to I want to see people uh, come together. And so that was a very, uh, very much so a catalytic moment for me uh, in my own growth and development. Um, yeah. And in Insider Outsider, you say, what makes white evangelicalism problematic is that it has never truly been submit or sub never truly submitted itself to simply one of many perspectives within the buffet of American Christianity. All right, man, let's camp on this. How can white evangelicals deepen and widen our perspectives of faith and theology and depth here? Yeah, first, um, it, you know, I, I need to set the listeners authentically at ease. 
Um, you know, I wrote an article some years ago called white is not a four letter word. And, um, in our current milieu, it's become really fashionable, uh, to make people feel guilty for white, for, for being white. Um, and so that's not where I'm coming from at all. Um, but if you study the history of Christianity in the United States, um, the ancestors of modern day evangelicalism were the Puritans. Um, and the Puritans, you know, you read their books. Um, I, I, I mentioned this in Insider Outsider. Um, man, it's, it's beautiful and your affections are stirred, uh, to use their phrasing. Um, and even though they're, they're, they've got an incredible soteriology, but they had a very flawed anthropology. Um, many of them owned slaves, Jonathan Edwards owned slaves, uh, Cotton Mather, um, the famous Cotton Mather, when he was negotiating his pastoral package deal at a, at a church in Massachusetts, um, he had thrown into his compensation a, uh, a slave whom he would go on to name Onesimus. Um, George Whitfield uh, lobbied the state of Georgia to legalize slavery because he was trying to get funding for his orphanage, which he wanted to base on the plantation model. So these, this is, this is where, where I'm coming from here. And so you get um, the forefathers of evangelicalism who are white who had incredible soteriology, but a very flawed anthropology. They're occupying seats of religious power. In the context of slavery, what, what are they doing? They are, they are discipling slaves into this evil hierarchy called race. And so the history of white evangelicalism has always been from the box seats of power. And it was kind of their way or the highway. And then, of course, you know, we can, you know, a lot of times, you know, people critique uh, the theology of African-Americans, um, of the African-American church, which that's problematic for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons why that's problematic is, is that the only schools we could get into for the longest were liberal schools. Mm. Conservative schools were not taking us. Um, I talked to a gentleman who, um, a school down south, if I said its name, you would know it. Uh, it's got a great reputation now, but at one point, it did not allow African Americans in. This guy was a bivocational pastor. Uh, he, just, he just wanted to learn the word. He petitioned to get in. They denied him. He petitioned to audit. They let him audit on the condition that he sit outside the classroom. Wow, And he said there were times in which he was sitting in the rain trying to learn the Bible. He was that hungry for it. So this is, this is what I'm saying. This is the ugly historical truth of white evangelicalism that must be reckoned with. Mm. Now, your, your posture is so helpful, Brian. And I want to start with that for listeners to say, not only do I recognize insider outsider as a resource that's incredibly helpful, but I recognize your posture um, in this. And so I ask questions into that posture. I'm very grateful for that. Kind of speed us up uh, to the events of this last season. And I'm curious, how did George Floyd's murder affect you personally? And then how did you address it in your church and in your leadership? Yeah, you know, um, it, it was... 
It, it was interesting the way it affected me. Um, there was bits of deep anger stirred into a rising apathy. Um, because when you've when you've lived lived as long as I have, I mean, my gosh, I, you know, I'm in my 40s, and um, I remember Rodney King seeing that video, being aghast, being even more aghast when these police officers got let off the uh, Rodney King L.A. riot, seeing all of that, and then I could just you know we can we can just run it down, um, and so I'm looking at that and I'm going, this is ind indisputable. Like I am really sympathetic to cops. Uh, we, we just had a meeting with some cops at our church and I told them, I says, look, I'm really sympathetic to your job. I mean, you guys have a split second to make oftentimes a life altering decision. And I respect that. I don't envy that. You guys are in a bad spot. And, and the political pressure that's on them now is really endangering their lives. Because now they're having to really think before they act, and they, they're not afforded that much time. So I, I understand that. I get that. But the uniqueness of George Floyd is I'm like, you know, come on out. He's cuffed. Yep. You've got his, you got your knee on his neck. We're not talking about a split second here. Uh, and even watching cops afterwards saying, yep, that was wrong. The unwritten rule is once the person's in handcuffs, the fight's over. Um but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I have this little voice going, yeah, but they'll find some way to get them to, to get off. So that's kind of the initial thing. Uh, I was deeply encouraged um, by the global outrage and protests. It was multi-ethnic. Um, I was blown away by the white empathy and mm -hmm. advocacy. Uh, it really felt different to me. Mm. So I kind of had that the the mixture of emotions there. And how did you address that within the church and even maybe just publicly on on areas like social media? Yeah, we we definitely called an audible. Um, you know, we were we were going to uh, continue um, in our series in First Peter. Then George Floyd happened, um, and so what we decided to do was we did a panel. Uh, me, J.D. Greer, and an African-American woman. Um, and, you know, it was just a discussion that we had. Um, that was a beautiful discussion, and we were able to seize the moment there. Um, you know, we we did some small group stuff. Um, you know, we um, had a time of lament uh, with our staff team. It was, um, yeah, we, we, we did several things. Mm. Good. Um, in addition, maybe to the support you sense from that, at least the openness to that, what else is giving you hope right now in both this racial moment and in this racial conversation? You know, um, I was just having a discussion with someone the other day. Um, you know, there is this thing among the younger generation, um, those in their, you know, 30s, 20s, um, you know, the it's a strong justice thing that I'm seeing among the younger generation, uh, which is really encouraging. Um, and it gives me hope for the future. Uh, when you look at the data, um, you know, uh, in the early part of the, of this century, 21st century, only two and a half percent of all Protestant churches were multi-ethnic. Now that number is up around 18 or 
Um, so we are seeing a huge uptick in multi-ethnic churches um, that that have justice uh, as a major um, major emphasis, uh, which is which is just phenomenal uh, and huge. And so I'm I'm just seeing. You know, I, I talk to church planters all the time, and I'm not just talking about black church planters. I'm, I'm talking about white church planters who are going, "Hey, I need some coaching here. God's put this on my heart." This is what I want to get after. So all of those things really encourage me. On the flip side, what's discouraging or disappointing to you right now? Um, so if you go back to the civil rights movement, it was that movement was both physically and figuratively, uh, physically and spiritually centered in the local church. Like literally before they would march in the streets, they would gather in churches and receive instructions, most of them from Christian leaders, pastors. Um, there, was a, there was a theology there. Even King's last speech is rich with theology as he's likening himself to Moses and African-Americans to Israel and him saying, I've been to the mountaintop. We as a people will make it into the promised land. I mean, so that's the civil rights movement, right? And then they march in the streets. And after the march, at some point, King and Andrew Young and Wyatt T. Walker and others, they'd hop on a plane, they'd fly to D.C. and they would um, they would lobby and there would be legislative gains. Fast forward to today. Um, the movement is pretty much leaderless, hmm. um, you know, um, and it's it's for sure not a part of the church. Uh, that's deeply troublesome to me. Um, we've 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 lost our moral infrastructure, and um, we need leaders um, who are going to connect the streets with Washington D.C. and to seek the kind of legislative gains we really need to experience. Uh, that's really good. Um, you strike me as both hopeful and realistic. That's hard to hold that intention. How do you hold hopeful and realistic intention, Brian? Well, you know, um, the old line about vision is vision begins with reality, right? Um, you have to have a firm grip on what is um, so that you can articulate um, what, what should be. Um, and so, you know, but the, the hard part is, you know, if you have too much of a grip on what is, it can lead to a bit of pessimism and, and cynicism. Um, you know, so I've, I've been able to hold that intention. I think what just helps me is doing community, um, um, with a multi-ethnic cohort of individuals, um, in doing life with my white brothers and sisters. And every time I'm tempted towards apathy or wanting to give up, you know, the spirit will bring to mind great friends like Adam and Nikki or Bobby and Heather and um, so many others. Um, and we'll say, no, you, you can't paint all white people with a broad brush. So, yeah. That's good. I, um, my wife and I and, and family are part of a multi-ethnic church and, our youngest two are adopted um, from Ethiopia. They're six, or our oldest two, 16 and 12. Um, this is a, a conversation that even if I wanted to ignore it, I can't. We talk about right. it 
almost every night. And, and among many close black friends, the conversation has gone something like, I'm so tired right now. This yep. is exhausting. So how can we as white friends um, maybe not even make them more tired, but even bring some sense of refreshment in this time um, when so many black leaders especially are tired? Yeah, I think step one is lament. Um, it's just it's just straight up lament. And lamenting involves listening. Uh, if you rush to solutions while bypassing lament, you'll end up with a cheap reconciliation that is really inauthentic. Mm. Um, and so it, really what I'm getting at is what the Bible calls grieving with those who grieve. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Job's friends were at their finest those first seven days when they just sat in the ashes and said nothing. And so I just think approaching with a humble listening posture over a cup of coffee or a good meal at the dinner table and just saying, man, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, I'm here to listen, um, whatever you want me to share and, um, and just be there for that. I, I think, I think the ministry of presence, it's, it's almost like, you know, I've, you know, when I graduated from seminary and I first started doing hospital visitations, you know, you you work yourself up um, under the burden of how can I cheer this person up and what can I say? And, you know, you and from a great place, you come across across as very patronizing. And it took me a while to figure out that, look, 90 percent of it is just being. There. Yeah, <laughs> it's just sitting in the room. Yeah. Um and there's times I've sat in the room and I haven't said much. And later on, I mean, the amount of just gratitude that these people express over just being there. I think it's the same when we're dealing with issues of, of, uh, of ethnic trauma. Mm. And why, why do we speak up in those moments? Why do we run to words, run to try to encourage, cheer up, those kind of things? Well, you know, it's the same way. And um, I'm, I'm intentionally generalizing. So I know it's not true in every situation. It's it's the same same way and same reason why a husband is so quick to try to fix his wife's pain. Right. Um, we, we just want to fix. We want to check boxes. Yep. We want to get to solutions. And um, I, I think, well, I'll speak for myself. I've learned the hard way. Um you know, rushing in to fix uh, is not always the the best thing. But I I, I do think it comes from a good place. Um, but you you have to rid yourself of any messianic proclivities that you can solve a four hundred year old problem. Mm -hmm. You 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 can't solve that. Um, I think what you can do is to leverage whatever blessings, privileges God has given you um, in very proactive ways um, to, to help bring about change. Mm, that's great. Camp on that for a minute. What are some of those ways um, that as white leaders we can leverage in order to be um, pushing the ball down the field, whatever analogy we have moving toward more toward Jesus's view of, of what the church can look like. Any practical steps for us? 
Yeah, you know, there's there's all kinds of things. You know, uh, over the years, I've I've um, I've heard great stories. Some even from friends. Um, you know, I've got one white friend who's very wealthy, um, who has uh, taken his money, some of his money, and has invested uh, in impoverished African American communities, uh, helping to build homes. Um, I've got a friend right now. Um, who he's also wealthy. I promise not all my white friends are wealthy. Um, but he feel, he feels strongly about reparations. This is his conviction. And he feels like um, that the money that he's made, yeah, he's worked hard for it, but he had one heck of a head start, um, just given the realities of our society coupled with the color of his skin. And so he started a reparations fund and is recruiting uh, others of uh, other of his friends to give to it and has recruited a group of us African-American pastors who can speak into ways in which those funds can be allocated. Many of those ways are to create educational opportunities uh, for African-Americans. Um, I know of uh, primarily white churches partnering with black churches um, where you've got uh, African-Americans who want to work but just don't have opportunities. And then you've got the entrepreneurs at some of these white churches going, I've got job opportunities. Let's see if there's a match. If there's not, can we get you the training that you need so that you are qualified for this job? I mean, sky's the limit, but those are just some of the ways. That's good. Um, man, so many questions, so many different directions we can go. Um, but the next time there is a public uh, outrage, outcry, public incident. Um, love to say that there's not going to be, and yet it will happen again. We can't go back uh, as leaders, but let's specifically talk to church leaders here, Brian. Next time that happens, um, what are some appropriate ways that churches can and should address that when it comes into the public eye? Yeah, I, th I think the first thing, especially if you're a white church leader, um, I, I, I think, um, many of my white brothers and sisters, um, I think they should understand that there's a, a deep cultural chasm between these communities. And what I mean by that is, uh, whites by and large don't see themselves communally as much as they see themselves as a collection of individuals. Uh, meaning that when a white person gets killed, let's say by a black person in Dallas, and it makes national news, white people aren't showing up at church that next Sunday going, oh, I sure hope the pastor says something about this because I'm really, really grieving about this. They don't say that across the board. On the flip side, the African-American and even Latino, Latina communities are deeply communal. So when something racially traumatic happens, uh, to someone of our ethnicity, we are coming into your churches hoping that you'll say something. Now, what does that, what does that need to be? Are there times in which you should change the sermon? Sure. Um, but it doesn't have to be that. I mean, you can just work into, many churches have a dedicated prayer time that's a part of their worship experience. And you can just maybe reallocate that prayer time to a time of lament where you just have people just sit quietly. Um, you know, or you could actually have, have the prayer time. I'd also want to encourage you. One of the things that we're doing at our church here, and it's, 
it's been one of the best things I've ever engaged in. I, I want to encourage you to have a a robust kind of 360 degree conversation where you not just deal with oppressed communities and listening to their hurts and pains, but you also spend time uh, with the police officers uh, in your Mm -hmm. community and listening to them as well and trying to go, is there a way in which we can come together here? Uh, Maybe even a town hall event and I wouldn't recommend this immediately in the aftermath of some kind of a shooting because people's emotions are so raw. You might want to put some space, mm-hmm. excuse me, so that people can settle down a little bit. But but you've got police officers who are who are, who are human beings. They're not just badges. Mm. They're human beings, and they have stories and narratives as well. And they need to be shepherded as well. Mm. So I, I I think paying attention to both those crowds is really, really helpful. And then the last thing I'll say is when something racially traumatic happens, we have to be careful of one of two um, responses. On the one hand, we don't want to rush in and play judge and jury. We just, we don't, we don't want to do that. But on the other hand, we don't want to have so much caution and disclaimer it so much that the footnote becomes larger than the text. Um, You want to just say, hey, this thing happened, we've seen it, and we are grieving with the family of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, whoever it may be. And in that moment, I've acknowledged the pain without casting a judgment um, and without going, let's wait until the facts. Uh, You don't don't want to do that. Um, And so I've found those things to be helpful. That's really good. Yeah, Brian, so helpful. I found insider outsider so helpful. Um, and I just want to honor you that you have a unique story and you have a unique place space um, position um, that is, you know, just incredibly helpful to so many leaders. So thank you for that. Thanks for your ministry. Uh, last question, permission to dream a little bit. What are some of your dreams for the church 30 years from now? Yeah, you know, the, the tagline for our organization, the Kainos movement, is um, we, want, we exist to see the multi-ethnic church become the new normal in our society. You know, I just think um, the power of um, a white police officer sitting in a small group with, you know, Trayvon Martin or um, Breonna Taylor or whatever, they're worshiping together. Um, you know, as my friend Eric Mason says, um, proximity breeds empathy. Um, when we're, when we're close with one another, when we're hearing each other's, um, triumphs and, and travails, um, mountains and valleys, that, that creates a deep sense of empathy in us. Um, and so I I think now more than ever, the multi-ethnic church is necessary, um, to bring people of various ethnicities in close proximity under the Lordship of Christ. That's my dream. That's beautiful. How can folks find out more about you and about Kynos Movement? Yeah, they can go to brianlaritz.com. Uh, they can follow me at on Twitter at bclaritz. Um, they can go follow me on, on Instagram at justlaritz. Uh, these are some of the ways they can track with me. Awesome. Brian, thank you. Thanks for what you do. But more than that, just for who you are. So grateful for you. Thanks. Appreciate you, man. 
Well, guys, before we let you go, we want to remind you that you can find us right here each and every week on Tuesday and Thursday, wherever you consume podcasts. And we would ask that you would do us a favor and leave us a quick rating and review wherever you listen. Those are very important. They're very simple, but they're very important in helping us get this message in front of more eyes, ears, and hearts. And one last thing, be sure and head over to rightsideupleader.com and pick up a copy of the Right Side Up Journal right now. Don't wait. They're 20% off while supplies last. This is a great tool to help you continue on your journey of health so that you can reach more impact. And as always, we'll see you right back here on the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Shine, shine. We ain't